We are now up to number 310. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts? I've been reading about and watching their uh, copies of paintings of Michelangelo and uh, Van Gogh, and they were leaders in their day. So you were talking about, you know, consciousness. So is it right then that I would assume that they were just um, tuning into a higher consciousness? Would that sort of make sense? <coughs> leaders don't necessarily lead people up. You know, sometimes leaders lead people down. Okay. So, or <coughs> but if somebody's innovating, they're obviously creating something. They're tuning into something that hasn't yet been manifested. But any creative work, you're you're tuning in to something that's already there that hasn't yet been manifested. And if your vision is a little ahead of your time, then you turn out to be a leader. If your vision is exactly in the times, you turn out to be immensely popular, but you don't necessarily last. Swami Kriyananda uh, was always had more respect for the Beatles because of John Lennon's answer to the question, do you think your music will live on beyond your lifetime? He said, why should it? <laughs> Which, of course, was his cheeky answer, but it was also, he knew at that point that they, they weren't really, they weren't manifesting greatness. They were just manifesting a good time and popularity. Might have been before they got more serious, but still, a lot of things are popular just because they're in tune, and you're only, almost by definition, if you're leading, you're not popular in your own age because you're going somewhere that people aren't going yet. And only afterwards are you discovered when, well, in this particular, I mean, this would be particularly true, which is most of our history now, which is Dwapara Yuga rising, where consciousness is becoming more interesting. In the case of Van Gogh, as an example, and I'm not an art history person, but the Impressionist and all of that, you knew people were, art was extremely literal. And then, People, I remember seeing an exhibition in San Francisco of the Impressionist painters, and it started, it showed you the progression, because you, the, the first room was so literal, and then they showed how these people stopped being literal in their representation, and it was just scandalous, because they were tuning into the energy of something, you might actually say, and and reproducing it visually, Van Gogh especially, you know, that you think of the night sky and what he was looking at. I mean, he's really telling you something about the night sky, but it isn't what the sky looks like, but it's what it feels like. So he was showing you the energy of something, which in Kali Yuga was just incomprehensible. Because in, in, in Kali Yuga, everything is matter. It's strict form. If you're skillful, you reproduce the form. And otherwise, what the heck are you doing? So that's why Van Gogh, you know, never sold any paintings and never made any money. People thought his art was lunatic. But as the times changed and people began to realize that all the forms they were looking at were actually vibrating with energy, you began to realize that that's what he was seeing. And, you know, so some people say he was crazy and other people say he was enlightened. It just depends on who you are. Crazy people who are mentally unbalanced also often see things that other people don't see. So it just depends on which way you're going. But I, I, because of the uh, beautiful vibration of his work, in his case you would have to see that he was tuning into something, but he was also a little mentally unbalanced, so he had a little of both. Yeah. 
No, he had both. So he had both. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. All right. That was it. So we'll go then to 310. Last week I set an all-time record by giving a whole talk on one sentence. I don't think I have ever done that in 82 classes, but I'm not saying I won't ever do it again. All right, number 310. How can people doubt God, the master asked. I once said to a medical doctor, I once said, wait, excuse me. How can people doubt God, the master asked. I once said to a medical doctor, how is it, how is it that poison kills nearly everybody, yet nothing heals universally? Doesn't it seem as though someone were at the controls? Einstein said, space looks very suspicious. We see everything coming out of it and everything disappearing it into it again. There seems to be everywhere a sort of orderly disorder, which defies human expectations, yet has an undeniable, if bewildering, consistency. It's a lovely phrase, undeniable, if bewildering, consistency. Man is not in control, no matter how much he'd like to believe he is. Something or someone is certainly at the controls. You know, it's, it's interesting because once you perceive, you know, a certain subtlety to reality, you really can't go back from it. I mean, in, in the process of our incarnations, uh, uh, s several acquaintances of mine, acquaintances, um, became serious about the spiritual path and then had uh, a break from objective reality and had to go through a period of time where they, they weren't able to, to relate to objective reality, then they were able to come back and be balanced in their mentality again. When it happened to someone I knew, I said to Swamiji, I, I, had, the I had the feeling, I don't believe that all breaks from objective reality are actually an upward movement into spirit. But in a couple of instances with people I knew who had these temporary breaks, I said, I felt like this really was um, spiritually induced. Not that they were spiritually advanced during the time they were disconnected, but it was spiritually induced. Swami's answer was very interesting to me. He said, madness is a necessary stage on the spiritual path. He said, because you, you reach a point where it has gradually begun to occur to you that what people consider real, real, consider to be the definition of life is not really the definition of life. And then you begin to explore enough on the spiritual path where you get enough wisdom to realize that my, my experience of life emanates from my own attitudes and inner consciousness. And therefore, suddenly, the only route to happiness is to master my inner consciousness. And if you're at all attentive, you will realize that is one heck of an assignment. And you'll just start looking. I mean, the, 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 the ego will look for an alternative and, and look very intensely for an alternative. My father was a Virgo 
And many of his Virgo qualities were pleasant, but some of them weren't. He was extremely good at ferreting out the small loophole in your argument. And it used to just annoy the heck out of me. Everything I had said would have been valid, but then I would have made some slight mistake, and he would, in his Virgo way, he would, he would burrow through that little hole. But in the same way, when in our spiritual progress over many lifetimes, we begin to realize that we are responsible for our own happiness, that you really didn't cause my unhappiness, it was only my response that caused it, that it is a hopeless quest to ever get everything and everybody in line sufficiently so that I won't have to be upset anymore. You know, I, I, I was charmed by a friend who, um, whenever there would be a falling out and, and an apology would be offered, it would also be coupled with, if you only hadn't behaved so badly, I wouldn't have gotten upset and therefore I wouldn't be needing to apologize to you. <laughs> well, that's sort of an apology, but it's, it's leaving rather a large loophole you know, for it not to have been your fault in the first place. But nonetheless, that's what the ego does. It's like you can't really be serious about this. When I, when I was first at Ananda Village, this would have been 1971-72, our guest facility was up at what, many of you have been there now, up to what is now the meditation retreat. The community was, I'm going like this, and the meditation retreat was here, and there was a six-mile distance between them. Some of it several miles on paved road and much of it on this extremely barren, rutted road, which is still the, the route. It's just that place is very isolated. All our guest programs were there. I was on the staff there and I gave a lot of the programs, but I lived over here. So after one of those programs, I was bringing one of the guests back to the other part of the community. And he had just been a hitchhiker who had just wandered in and was kind of exploring communities, you know, just tripping around, seeing what was up. So he had sat through my class, which I believe was on karma and reincarnation or something that was not, like, for the faint-hearted. And when we were halfway back to the farm in this completely barren area that the diggings there, which is completely barren, it's almost like he looked around and saw that we were completely alone and said, did you really believe all that stuff you were talking about? <laughs> it was like you're among friends, no one else is here. I can arrange for your rescue from the cult if you like. I mean, that was all implied by what he said. And I just said, well, actually I do. But it was, just seemed crazy to him. All of it seemed crazy to him. Yet, he had the karma to be there and hear it. Which is in the Bhagavad Gita, it talks about the various stages of exposure to the spiritual path, which begins with when people talk about it, you don't even hear it. You don't even hear it. People are saying it right to you, but your, your whole being just shuts down. And uh, so uh, you, we go through stages where we gradually become convinced, and then we go through a very difficult stage where we know it's true, but we really, really don't want it to be true. And that actually lasts for quite a long time. <laughs> but it, it can reach crisis proportions where um, it's so frightening to me what's being asked of me that I'm just going to take a holiday. Just take a complete mental holiday. And in terms of the three delusions, which is wine, sexuality, and money, and money represents power. Most of the time when people want money, what they want is power and freedom from that. 
I noticed that in the early years of Ananda Village when we were very impoverished. Some people were quite comfortable being impoverished and some people really needed money. And we didn't really need money. We were fine without money. But I realized that money was freedom for them. And what they were afraid of was becoming powerless in the situation. I sort of began to understand the more subtle. It's not just being able to buy things. It's being able to choose your circumstances and not feel trapped. I mean, it's a very understandable feeling, which is why people want money. Um, I, it wasn't, didn't happen to be my issue. I had many others, <laughs> but that, wasn't, that didn't focus in that way. To be fair, though, it's not that I came in anyway from a wealthy family, but I came from a secure family. And so I, was, I, I always knew that I had a backstop, and some people didn't, and that was very different. Um, so, but wine, sexuality, and money, wine is just the desire not to have to face it. So we want to intoxicate ourselves in some way. We want to dull our consciousness in some passive manner, which people use food, they use sugar, they use television, they use drugs, alcohol or other drugs, just because it's too much. And madness is just the ultimate way to not have to deal with it. You just take a little left turn. Actually, just thinking of my father, at the end of my father's life, my mother had Parkinson's for 15 years, and my father was her primary caregiver. In the end, other people came in also, but my father took responsibility for her. But just before the end of her life, almost in one day, something happened to him, whether he had a stroke or what happened. But he he took a huge mental dip and just didn't function in the world the way he'd always functioned. And I sort of looked at him and I thought, he's just gone on a holiday. It's like he can see that my mother's coming to the end of her life, 56 years of very devoted marriage. He just didn't want to be there. You know, I was, he, was, he was not really unhappy. He had just taken a left turn from objective reality and he just didn't want to deal with it anymore, which I, I totally supported him. You know, I could understand it was long enough. So we can see how, in the course of our life, the evidence that someone is in charge, and the implications of that is that it's an orderly universe, and what Master writes here, even though we'd like to think we're in control, we begin to notice that we're not. I mean, that's terrifying. And it's helpful as devotees just to be able to say it out loud. You know, we are subject to authority that is difficult to access and, and, and seems at first impossible to control. Now, of course, gradually we learn. I mean, there's that phrase, karmic law, which is really a... Ugh, it's kind of chilly, chilling. And there's another phrase, divine law. Even more than divine will, I think divine law is actually more graphic and to my mind in many ways more helpful because well not so in our society i when we were when our church was caught up for more than a decade in this chaotic litigation against us from a, a, another church in america where we can start churches there's always the first church of which for a long time has a monopoly on whatever follows after the of. And then at some point, invariably, 
there's some kind of a split. And then there's the second church of. And the poor first church of thought it had a monopoly, but now there's the second church of. So in centuries ago, they used to throw each other into prison and things like that. In this uh, century, people just sue each other. So we had 12 years of litigation. And when we started in the litigation, those of us who were on the legal team, I remember saying to one of our attorneys, well, I was trying to help her and work with her a lot, and she was training me in how to really think. And finally, she sensed what my problem was. She said, Asha, the law is not logical. The law is not intuitive. She said, the law is political. And it simply is what it is. It's, it's what the judges, it's what the legislature has declared, and it's what the judges have decided. And therefore, you have to start with what it is. And you can't spend all your time thinking it ought to be something else. Because if it isn't, it isn't. Well, divine law is intuitive, and it's not political. And it's also actually quite logical. It's just that the logic is derived from an entirely different set of premises than the impression we get from the material world. In the material world, you get the impression that wine, sexuality, and money is really where it's at. On, a, on the divine level, according to divine law, these are actually diversions from harmony with that which is. And that is not what most people want to hear. I remember when I very first came on the path, many neophytes do this, I have learned since. I, I guess because I had renunciate scars, I, I, in, pa- in past, I, I became completely persuaded of the truth of the principles of self-realization about five minutes after my first book on the subject was given to me. So it, I wasn't learning it in this life. I was just finally, 18 was pretty young, but it felt like finally to me, it was given to me. But I became very enamored of the fact that desires are the cause of suffering. And so if you can renounce your desires, you won't suffer anymore. It, being very naive and having no idea what those words actually meant or what desires actually were, being a slightly non-materialistic person, I just put it in very materialistic terms, I had no concept of what it really meant, that, that it was the desire to have an ego that was really the problem. It wasn't a question of buying new clothes. But anyway... So I was trying to persuade someone I knew, an acquaintance of mine, that this teaching was so terrific. And I said, you know, haven't you noticed that when you have a desire for something, it just makes you restless? And yes, yes, I've certainly noticed that. And then, you know, when you finally have that desire fulfilled, you finally buy that new thing that in a very short time, it it just doesn't make you happy in the way you thought. Yes, yes, I've noticed that. And I thought, oh, my first convert. I was so excited. So she said, that's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. (laughs) I was just dumbfounded, but it was a very instructive lesson that I've never forgotten. Because that is, people see the same evidence, but then they interpret it according to the, well, to their desires. Reason follows feeling. But then, after a while, and when we're t- after a while we're talking perhaps maybe millions of lifetimes, we have enough accumulated experience and it, we have enough samskars on our consciousness, where, which are samskars or impressions on your consciousness from past life experience. 
when I, I always had this, this passionate commitment to, to finding a way to happiness, to understand what happiness was and to ensure happiness in my life. I mean, this was like a childhood belief that I always wanted. And I, when I finally came to Ananda and I was talking to Swamiji, by then I was 24, I said to him, you know, it's so puzzling to me because I've really, I've had a wonderful life up until that point and I still have. You know, I said, really, I've hardly ever been unhappy for a full day. I mean, everything has gone beautifully, very fine family, just every opportunity. I said, and yet, I've just been, you know, desperate to find happiness, but I've always had it. I said, what is this? I felt a little crazy. He said, the obvious past lives. That enough experience of the ephemeral nature of how we get it all in order. You know, just all organized. Recently, one of the prayer requests we got, it's it's almost unbearable to think about it, was some local person who had twin sons who were seniors in high school and one of the boys was killed. In a, you know, in an, in an auto crash. One of the boys was killed in an auto crash. You know, just friends of friends that came through on our... And so, you know, just you sit there and you think about it. I have no idea even who these people are. But I've been so conscious of this poor young man now who wakes up every morning without his brother. You know, who has, has from the womb, has always had his companionship. You know, even if those things aren't happening to me, or happening to even to anybody I actually know, hearing about it reminds me that someone is in control, and that control is not always consistent with the plans that I have. And it alerts us either to the fact that this is a scary place and I think I need a drug, you know, to keep me from having having to deal with it, or I think I'll just go crazy for an incarnation or two, which is sort of, I think it's been my drug of choice. I think my drug of choice more recently than any substance has just been, I'm out of here, you know, and I don't know what I was doing, but I think I did it for a long time. It's, very, it's a very familiar turf to me somehow to do that. And uh, suicide also I didn't mention. That's the other one, where you just think, I'll just snuff out my consciousness. The, op- the problem with all of them is that it doesn't work. It's really as simple as that. I mean, it's, and it's, it sets you back because you have to go on this long loop of experience to find out it's a huge loop like this where you end up right where you were, just exactly right where you were. Just before I met Swami, actually, um, I already knew about self-realization, but I didn't know what to do about it. And I was standing looking out the window um, at these other apartments. I was living in an apartment. And I, re- I really understood drug addiction, suicide, and madness. And I considered madness. It seemed like a, a good idea. But I had this realization, this is past life memories. Oh, I thought, if I just, you know, break from reality... It'll be a whole scene while people gradually figure out that I'm really nuts. They will have to sort it out. They'll have to take me to the mental hospital. They'll have to talk to psychiatrists. They'll probably give me drugs. I'll be in there for a long time. Gradually, I'll come out of it. And then when it's all over, I'll be standing at this window looking out the window. (laughs) And not one thing will have changed. 
I will have just spent a huge amount of time, except I'll be very tired. I'll be exhausted from the effort. Because it's divine law. And, and having by that point really embraced this understanding, there was no way out. And a lot of times when people don't want to believe in God and will look at all the evidence, you know, it, a, a very important point of masters, which is really has to be remembered, it's so simple, reason follows feeling. If you're prejudiced in a certain way, you will, if emotionally prejudiced, you will find ways to support it with reason. But, you know, they've discovered now physiologically that the same whatever it is, I'm so, I'm so unschooled in these things, but the heart looks a lot like the brain. And a tremendous amount that happens, that we think was happening in the brain, is actually happening from the heart. Because this is the point from which our consciousness is defined, because the heart chakra is where our likes and dislikes exist, which is to say all our fears, because likes and dislikes, behind that is always fear. So we have all these likes and dislikes, which is to say this will make me happy and this won't. And naturally, we want that which makes us happy. And so the heart, instead of being still at the center, is always oscillating. And, and then it influences, and actually decisions, they say now, whatever, however they study these things, the thought process actually happens a lot in the heart. Because the heart makes up, makes up its mind as to what it wants, and then it finds a reason why it wants that. So that's why very, very intelligent people can yet embrace philosophies that are, seem so uh, antithetical to intelligence. You know, that certain races are inferior, or that... Um, I just... I mean, that's just the beginning. Um, that, you know, or that I am not a part of all that is, <laughs> or if I treat everybody ghastly, in a ghastly way, that somehow I won't end up alone and hated. You know, these are just like reason follows feeling. So if we don't want to accept the implications of someone being in charge and my not being in control, we will fight with everything we have to prove that that's a false idea. And that's why you can't really persuade anyone of this, because if they aren't ready for it, you can exchange intellectual knowledge. Swamiji talked about a, a talk he gave at one of the uh, high-level U.S. universities. I don't know which one it was. This was in the 60s, the late 60s. And he said it was a very, very intelligent group. And they asked many interesting questions. You know, he said many more interesting questions than he was usually asked. And being uh, articulate and it, having a high high level of that kind of intelligence, Swamiji was able to converse with these students in a way that they all enjoyed. But he was also having to try to persuade them. But he realized afterwards that they would all just go back to their dorm rooms, think it out, and come back with a whole new set of challenges. And it was just, it was pointless to try to persuade because the questions they were asking were not the questions of a truth-seeker. They were the questions of an intellectual debater who, in fact, was going to defend its position with its mind, which is why I actually, in my one year of college at Stanford University, had one, only, actually only one week of actual interest in what was being offered there because, I do, uh, because of that. I took some class, I believe it was called Consciousness, 
This is 1965, so such a class was a really big innovative idea. And I thought we were going to go in and really try to talk about what was true. And I found out immediately that all we were going to do was just exchange opinions and argue with each other and be very, very careful not to draw any actual conclusions. And I was, I was shocked. And, you know, that was when I realized I wanted wisdom, not knowledge. And I was interested in something they weren't interested in. So I stayed for the rest of the year, but it wasn't my cup of tea and I could tell. But in our own lives, we also have to watch ourselves whether we're really trying to get to the truth or whether we're really trying to find reasons to justify uh, the, the emotional position we have already taken. A friend of mine, Swami Kriyananda, was in the habit when he would be writing a book, he would often pass the manuscript out to a dozen or so people who, uh, who he thought could give him good input. And when he wrote a book that had a special focus, sometimes he would send it to people who wouldn't otherwise be among his first readers. So when he wrote the book Education for Life, he sent the manuscript to this woman who, was, uh, who had a, back, a strong background in education and was you know, involved in our schools. And this was, would have been like the early 80s. And this woman was a friend of mine, and she, in, the, in a couple of days dealing with this, she called, she, 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 she didn't yet have the nerve to communicate this to Swamiji, but she was communicating to me. And I had the manuscript too, and she would say, look on page 31, look at the second paragraph. You know, Swami says that the tree was oval in shape, and actually it really wasn't oval, it was more like round. You know, that was the level of her criticism. She was just picking apart very tiny points. And I kind of did that for a day or two with her. And finally, her objections were so petty, I became impatient. And I said really loudly, what are we talking about? And, and then she just blurted out, if he's right about anything, then I'm going to have to listen to him about everything. I said, oh, we're talking about fear. I understand fear. Let's have a conversation about fear. Let's not keep talking about the manuscript. But that's what it was. There was no reason. Reason was following feeling. She had to reject him because she was afraid to be guided by anyone. You know, you can go out there like that. And if we're afraid that we're not in charge and it's not going to go according to our egoic plan, we will work really hard to refute the idea that there is such a thing as divine law. Now, let me just speak about divine law for a minute. You know, we talk about the laws of physics, we talk about the law of gravity, and nobody objects to those things. They are, obje nobody objects because they're objective. You know, it just is the way it is. You can have, although on, on very high levels, um, it can, it, the, there's an element of grace and beauty in it that becomes, quote, just a matter of taste, but how you, ex how you come to the same conclusions. But people nonetheless are seeing something that's objectively there. All of this extraordinary technological advancement that we've, and development that we've seen in the course of our lifetimes is based on objective realities that people have discovered. Swami Kriyananda's father, now of course we're going back to the 1920s, um, was an oil geologist 
um, for what became Esso. Esso or Exxon, right now I can't remember which it was, but for an oil company. It was Standard Oil Company at that point. And he was sent to Romania. And in Romania, petroleum had just been bubbling out of the ground as long as people knew. I mean, it was just always there. He didn't, it wasn't discovered. What was discovered was what to do about the fact that it was boiling out of the, just bubbling out of the ground. So all of the realities that we've seen, just suddenly what people had been looking at for generations took on new meaning. So they, they tell the story of whenever it was that Newton was hit on the head by the apple and understood the, the pull, the gravitational pull of the earth. He didn't invent it. He just put the pieces together. And so people have put a lot of pieces together and have made a whole lot of things happen. Uh, and what, the way they do it is not by a matter of opinion. They, they do it by exercising the laws. Um, in the, uh, that movie, Hidden Figures, which was about um, the African-American women who were, quote, human computers, who did a whole lot of the mathematics for the space exploration. And in the movie, and perhaps it was over-dramatized, perhaps it wasn't, but, you know, they had to calculate exactly all these different mathematics, these different factors, in order to make sure that the astronaut who was orbiting the Earth could get back into the Earth's atmosphere. And it wasn't a matter of opinion, it was a, it was a matter of, of, of cosmic law, that if they went in a certain way, a certain thing would happen, if they went in the other way, a certain, another result. That's just what divine law is. It's except that it has to be perceived um, by looking inward toward ourselves instead of looking outward toward the behavior of others. But once we really get that there is such a thing as divine law, and then we really get that if I cooperate it with it, then that which I seek will come to me, and if I try to go against it, divine law itself will ensure that my wrong desires are thwarted. And when we really know that, I mean, like, no astronaut orbiting the Earth is going to say, well, I prefer a different angle. I like it better. Because he knows he'll be incinerated. He just, he knows he can't do it. And we as devotees gradually begin to understand that there's just no point in even thinking about it because I'll be incinerated if I do that. If I take something that isn't mine, I'll be incinerated. I was telling somewhere, maybe I'm repeating, maybe it was even here, but like what it would have been like somewhere in the 90s, I found a pair of leather gloves on the sidewalk in San Francisco and I picked them up. And they weren't mine. Somebody had dropped them. It was a very crowded sidewalk. In my mind, it was like they'll never find them again. They're nice gloves. And I took them home. I always felt uncomfortable about those gloves because they weren't mine. And finally, I had a very expensive pair of gloves that I bought to ride on my bicycle when the weather was cold. And in kind of a freak accident, my bicycle basket, some things fell out, and the gloves fell out, and I saw, and I went back, and I only ever found one glove. I could never find the second glove. It just disappeared. But I knew that was the final, finally the retribution for having picked up those other gloves, which I still had, which I immediately took to Goodwill. You know, because they had been bothering me for 30 years because they weren't mine. But I had just ignored it. 
Now, maybe I'm just being fanciful, but I didn't feel fanciful at all. I felt like it was just cause and effect. So if you know that the effect of this immoral action, this adharmic action, this attempt to find a shortcut to happiness, whatever that might be, it's just going to incinerate me. You know, there's a point at which you still want to experiment because you're not persuaded. And then there's a point at which there's just no power on earth that can even tempt you. Which is why when you see, like this week in our Sunday reading, it was a quote from the autobiography about Badori Mahashaya, who was uh, the levitating, not the levitating saint, was he the levitating saint? And he, uh, uh, as the autobiography said, it was known that he had given up great wealth. It said in early childhood uh, in a quest for God. And so somebody looking at from the outside says, oh, Master, what a sacrifice. Because that's just how they would see it. Oh, all that money, all that comfort, all that power, all that ease, and you gave it all up. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, it's the worldly person, meaning the person who depends on the world for his happiness, he said those are the true renunciates because they renounce an eternity of bliss for, as he put it, a handful of rupees. And so you can hear that and it sounds good to you, but it's quite different if it really is just one is painful and one is not. And that's why the Bhagavad Gita says what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi what is night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. That it actually flips. It just becomes completely different. You can't, you, you couldn't force a person who recognizes the folly of certain actions to do those things. I laughed at this many years ago. We, we, we've been in this building since 1994, so that's quite a long time, September of 94. Before that we had a, an office suite on California Avenue a few blocks over. We had a second floor office suite, second floor in the back, which, of course, it wasn't as nice as this, but it was silent. You know, this, the traffic noise here was a bit of a sacrifice for, for many good benefits, but it was silent. So no matter what was going on around us, we were just way in this interior space and there was no noise at all. And at that time, across the street, in a building that, I'm not sure if it's still there or not, it was a Quonset hut building, and it had been converted into a nightclub which was variously called The Edge and a few other things like that. It had names like that. And sometimes we'd have Saturday night or Friday night programs especially. I think it ran during the week too. Yeah, it ran during the week. And I, even then, I rode a bicycle. Um, and sometimes we'd come out of our place about 9.30 or 10, and it was across the street and a half a block down. But the base was so intense that you would actually feel it it would come under the street and you could feel it under your feet on the sidewalk. And, and um, I, one, one day I was going home and for some reason I rode my bicycle around and the entrance was from the back. And that was an era when everybody wore black, nobody wore color. So there were about 150 swarming black-clad people just lined up to go into this place where there was this throbbing base and they were so excited to go in. I thought, that would be my definition of hell to be sent in there. And, you know, and they were pushing to get in. And I realized, you know, it's just, it's what, it's what 
you have seen what you think is true. Now, to be very fair, a person who has been terribly repressed, who's never had the opportunity to express themselves at all, who's never had the courage to sin or the energy to sin, it's progress. It's progress to discover sensuality and drink, you know, because at least they're, they're beginning to have the nerve to live. But then there's a point at which the consequences of that way of living are, are so painful that it just doesn't tempt you anymore. And then there's the icky middle, which is where you, you know that divine law is true, but there's still this wish that it weren't. You know, and that's basically what we're working with right now. The shift from being a kshatriya to a brahmin. Kshatriya is a warrior, and the, that's the, fourth and the, the third and fourth caste. Caste meaning levels of spiritual evolution. The kshatriya is the warrior, and the, the image is willing to sacrifice even one's life for one's ideals. That's the ideal of the perfect soldier. Forget real life. Just think of it as an ideal. And the battle we're doing is with our own false incli- wrong inclinations. So we have to gather self-mastery. So by the time you're at all serious about the spiritual path, at least a solid portion of your mental citizens have become kshatriyas. There's still a lot of vaishas, a lot of what's in it for me, and there's still a lot, isn't there a way I can get out of this without so much effort, which is the first, first and second cast. But a part of us is willing to do battle. And then when we finally master it, we become so attuned to God that there's really no battle anymore. It's just that's the only perception and that's the only inclination we have. So most of us live, we still get sucked down, but most of us live somewhere between having to fight like crazy to stay in line and uh, effortless self-surrender. Or what's in it for me? We're sort of all moving around. It's not clear-cut. Does that all make sense? So when Master says, how can people doubt God? But is he, he knows why. Because they don't want to know. It's as simple as that. And so what one has to ask oneself when you find yourself arguing, I find, what am I afraid of? What am I protecting? Why am I resisting? And whenever I ask the question, what am I afraid of? What am I protecting? Why am I resisting? There's always a good answer. And it's not, it's not a stupid answer. It's not that I'm just, you know, hopeless. It's that I've had a lot of wrong thoughts and they're just not so easy to get rid of. And, and especially it's not so easy to get rid of fear because it's a feeling in the heart. It's not, it's not reasonable. It's just fear. So what am I afraid of? Okay, why am I afraid of it and how can I work with that? Like I said to my friend about the manuscript, okay, you're afraid. So let's talk about fear and what we might be able to do about it. And then you just, you have to work sensibly. You know, you just, when a child is six, child is six, you can't just really be upset with a child because he's six and not 17. He's just six, that's all what can he do? There's nothing... This is slightly off the subject, but I was remembering it this morning. One of our school teachers is Craig Kellogg, and he's a very strong man, and he's a has been and still does for fun, plays ice hockey, which is a very physical sport, and coaches it. And he and he's before he was teaching, he was he was a volunteering in our school, and he also had a small private practice 
helping mostly boys but all children be good at whatever sport they were interested in because he just understood it. And there was this little boy, his name was Mateo, and he was about five. And this was the little scene I witnessed. Mateo fell and scratched his knee up and was bleeding and Craig was very uh, affectionate and appropriate and supportive and got him off off the ground and took him over and cleaned up his leg and did whatever he had to do and bandaged it. And then when it was all done, he takes Mateo's hand. Mateo's about this big and Craig's really big, really strong. They're walking together and, and Craig becomes the sports coach. He says to Mateo, walk it off, Mateo. Just walk it off like that. <laughs> and you see the little boy trying to stand up strong and just walk it off. Okay, I'll walk it off now. <laughs> I'd never even heard the phrase before, but I understood that's what you do. Okay, you're hurt too bad. Back in the game. Just walk it off like that. But actually, I, that is actually, I love that phrase. There's been lots of times in my life, you know, Okay, I've crashed and burned. I've gone to the, I've, I've bandaged the wound, you know, and now I just have to walk it off. There's nothing else to do. That's what a kshatriya does. You know, you just, you don't have the luxury to say, I won't fight. You just have to go back into the game. All right, let's take a brief break and then we'll see what's next. Uh, several years ago, I did Swami's Essence of the Bhagavad Gita. I did a class. These are called book study classes. I started doing book study classes, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, right after Swami published The Hindu Way of Awakening. And it's, he, he, he considered that to be one of his most important books, but he often said that about as soon as he finished something. So he read that, he wrote that, and part of what he was doing was describing that Every religion has two aspects, the way of belief and the way of awakening. The way of belief is the external practices, and on that level, he said, religions will never be unified because the way of belief varies so enormously from one to the other. Every, every true religion that's based on Sanatana Dharma, on eternal principles, on divine law, um, uh, has also the way of awakening. And no matter what the way of belief is, the way of awakening is the same for every religion. It has to be. Because it has to be the energy rising up to the, the spine to higher and more refined levels of awareness. It has to be the, the ego gradually dissolving and the, and the small self merging into the infinite self. Because that's what every... That, that's Sanatana Dharma in India. One, one definition is that which is. And, and compassion, kindness, a sense of universal involvement, all of those things are what happens when you begin to awaken. So Swamiji wrote the Hindu way of awakening. He said, it was, it, he, said he was surprised that he started with Hinduism, but that's how it came to him to do. And he was guided to do things. He didn't reason it out. So he wrote the Hindu way of awakening, which was using many of the examples and the symbols and practices of what people think of as Hinduism to show their actual esoteric inner significance to describe by describing that way of awakening to describe all ways of awakening. It was a very important book, but it was not easy to understand. I'm explaining how I got into this in the first place. So I, he would, I was one of his early readers, so I would always read his books in manuscript form 
chapter by chapter. And, um, but when the book was finally published, I was very interested, and I sat down with it, and I started at the beginning. And it was hard work. Swami writes extremely clearly, and he makes even esoteric ideas, comparatively speaking, simple. He, he's not one who likes to confuse you. You know, he, he doesn't enjoy making it complicated. He loves making it simple. But I had to work really hard to understand that book. And it crossed my mind that if I had to work that hard, everybody had to work that hard. And that my background was a lot deeper than many people. So many people would either not read it at all, or if they did read it, they would only get a little of what was written there. So it occurred to me that I ought to start leading book study groups. Because he had much more to say than I did. And if I started with Swami's ideas, then everything else would follow. So that was the first one I did a really long time ago, and I'm, I'm still at it, you know. I just, I've done a couple of books more than once. But in the process of this, I, we got to the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, and because it was such a big, fat book, I divided it up into 10-page segments, which actually came out to be 52 10-page segments, which maybe at that time, I, I did 52 classes in a year. Subsequently, I, I take more breaks or I travel. But I was so frustrated because 10 pages of that book, you know, you just barely got to say a fragment of what was in there. But I committed myself to it. I'd published online a reading list, everything. But when I finished that, I swore I would never do it again. So ever since then, I say, we're starting now and we'll end whenever. <laughs> so here we are after 82 classes at number 311 which I will now read. We had tried to grow... I want to just put in one more thought because we were saying it during the break. It was interesting. At the end, after Swami wrote The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita, almost every, not quite, but almost every internet series he did or television show he recorded, and he was recording television shows for India and also a station in Dubai at that time, he always did it on the Gita. He did like th at least three, maybe four different series on the Gita. And he said that Master declared, after he finished writing his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, that, that, that millions will find God through this book. He said, you know, I, I, not just thousands, millions. Then he said, I know I have seen it. Like that. So... Swamiji felt that the book that SRF published as Master's Bhagavad Gita Commentary had been edited in too scholarly a way. And Swamiji found it hard to, hard to see how millions of people would be able to read that book because it's, it's a, a bit dense to read. And so when Swami wrote the version he wrote, The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita, um, as proclaimed by Paramahansa Yogananda, as remembered by his disciple Swami Kriyananda, because he wrote it without access to the original manuscript. After that, Swami felt that if Master placed this, this, his explanation of the Bhagavad Gita at the heart of his entire mission, and that millions would find God through this book, Swamiji felt that as, his, as Master's disciple, it was his duty to direct people to that book. So if you go onto the internet and look, Swami Kriyananda's commentary on the Gita, You'll find half-hour programs. You'll find 15-minute programs. I don't know if there's anything shorter than 15 minutes. And sometimes he's sitting in front of a 
It looks like a window to, the, to his garden. Sometimes he's sitting in front of the Himalayas. Sometimes he's sitting in front of a wooden screen, just all depending on when and where. But it was, uh, I was, we were just talking during the break. It's so interesting because that's an ancient scripture that actually came from the comparable point in the yuga cycle, but in the descending cycle instead of the ascending. It was between, it was as Dwapara shifted into Kali descending. That was Krishna's incarnation. Now it's Kali shifting into Dwapara ascending. So we're going the other way, but it's, it's the same horizon line. But the Bhagavad Gita, because of Master's, I mean, working backwards from Master's commitment to it, Master said that Krishna was an incarnation of Babaji and that he himself was Arjuna. And it was Babaji who sent Master to the West. And so now they're picking up that same scripture. And the implication is that the scripture with this Dwapar Yuga interpretation of it is going to take us really far into Dwapar Yuga. Isn't that interesting? It's like, who, who is in charge here? Like, what is really going on? It's so, we become so worried a lot of the time about a lot of things. But when you just stand back, or when you're able to stand back, just, just a foot, and you look at it, you realize it's all just running the way it has to run. That there is somebody in charge. You see how different it is if nobody's in charge? I mean, I don't know how people live if nobody's in charge. And, well, you know how they live. It's tough. And when you can really build not merely hope, but actual faith, that it really does actually work out for the best. Um, It's a long and very pleasant exhalation at that point. (sighs) Big sigh. That's why we come together. That's why we come together over and over and over again and read these books and talk to each other and meditate and chant and live together and do everything we can because it's just inch by inch we, we push away the delusion and embrace the reality. And even a little practice of this inward religion, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, will free us from dire fears and colossal sufferings. And of all the words in all the scripture, when Swami wrote the Festival of Light, that was one of them that he picked up. And every week we say, even a little practice of this inward religion will free one from dire fears and colossal sufferings. Don't you love that language? And you you have to stop and think, wow, what a promise. Yes. In the Eva, there's a line where Babaji says, to Lahiri. In the Eva, there's a line where Babaji tells Lahiri, tell all your disciples that line from that the Gita. Line, tell all your disciples. Babaji says to Lahiri. Yeah, look at that. Because Babaji told Lahiri to initiate everyone into Kriya, which is the practice of inward religion. It's the way of awakening. Kriya is the way of awakening. Kriya simply means action, and the specific Kriya that Babaji taught to Lahiri awakens inner consciousness. Kriya is the way of awakening, whatever you call it. That's what, that's to release, to dissolve the karma and the chakras, to interiorize one's awareness, to lift one's awareness to attunement with God. That's the way of awakening. 
whether you're a, a Buddhist, a, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Jain, a Zoroastrian, a Sufi, who doesn't matter. That was Ramakrishna's mission. Um, and, and I mean, Master declared it, and declared it from a different, different in a different way. Ramakrishna practiced all those different paths, and realized God through, you know, many of them, just to show that the way of awakening was the same for everyone, and that you could practice the way of belief, and then you would come to the way of awakening. And when you got there, you were in the same place everybody always was. All paths come together. And God realization, what an interesting world it will be when people finally get that. Here people are, are literally killing each other over the way of belief. And in the autobiography it says, Jesus and Babaji have planned the salvation. They're very concerned about the direction of Western civilization with its race wars and its religious bigotry and they have planned the salvation of this age. And the salvation of this age is the way of awakening through Kriya, through a specific action that will awaken you. These are the things that you say to yourself when the news comes on or you accidentally see the headlines. It's all right. Jesus and Baba, do you have it covered? You know, it's okay. Whatever it looks like now, they got it covered. Ananta talked about an experience he had where he was just about getting a building permit to put the roof on the on his church before the rain started and uh, various miraculous things happened and finally it all got settled and he said just as he saw it getting settled he was standing and he said he felt an arm across his shoulder and he really felt that Master was standing next to him and said, sort of leaned over and said, don't worry, I got it covered. <laughs> don't worry, I got it covered. You know, these things, you think about these things, don't worry, I got it covered. That's why faced with this complicated problem of the ownership of the community that we've been leasing for the last 30 years, not finding a simple way out of the fact, given how much how expensive real estate has become in this area, we just gave the whole thing to Babaji, figuring that the, 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 um, the palace that he manifested in the Himalayas in which he initiated Lahiri Mahashaya, the net worth of that was probably a little less than what our community costs right now. <laughs> but he could make up the difference. And we call, we call the project Operation Golden Palace <laughs> because it's beyond us and we're just hoping he's got it covered. We just don't know how else to deal with it. So we're doing our best and hoping he's doing the rest, expecting him to do the rest. Number 311. We had need to grow edible melons. We, tried, we had tried to grow edible melons in the desert, but had never been successful, the desert being the monk's retreat and master's retreat at tw near 29 Palms. Yet everywhere out there, a type of melon, inedible or perhaps even poisonous, flourished in abundance. It grew on its own without help from anyone. One day, the master was walking past one of these weeds and noticing it, remarked, See? All this is a suggestion of God's for no reason that man can see and by the suggestion of consciousness alone the bad melons grow here where no other melon will. You know, human will was trying to do one thing but divine will had another plan. That was the home of those poisonous melons and they were just going to keep doing it. His reference to those melons was to show that there is a conscious intention behind everything. 
that intention applied to those melon weeds demonstrated also the presence of the satanic force. For Satan, he said, is that aspect of the infinite consciousness which might be called the spoiler. Isn't that interesting? There's so many good words for delusion. The spoiler. Satan's handiwork is visible everywhere. He is the villain of the piece. The master obviously wasn't saying that the evils of this world being suggestions of God ought to be viewed as objects of worship. He was referring only to the amazing evidence all around us that there is consciousness itself everywhere at work. Interesting, isn't it? I recently saw, uh, I don't think it's newly released, but I only recently saw it. Uh, it's about, it's the first, it's, it's, it's called the first nine months or something like that. I don't really know what it's called. I've only watched the, it, and it's about conception and the development in the, uh, in the womb of a child and then the birth of a child. And it's, it's scientific. I don't know how they ever get the film that they get. They must have put a little camera inside somebody's womb. I don't know how they did it. But it's all this about the developing embryo. And for some reason, they talk about the natural development, but, they, but they're illustrating it by uh, either aberrations or, or unique things. And so the whole thing starts with four identical sisters, um, you know, extremely rare, that one egg divided into four, one egg and sperm after uniting that single beginning divided into four parts and replicated, its, replicated itself identically. So you have these darling nine or nine-year-old girls who are just so cute and they're all exactly the same. But I was, in watching the whole thing, and watching these scientific pictures of pulsing eggs, you know, and cells subdividing and all of that, it's like, of course, what happened was that four jivas, four individual sparks of the divinity, four um, egos on their way to self-realization. Jiva is that wonderful Sanskrit word, which means an individual spark of spirit, which is the animating force through all our incarnations. It's a, a, a more exact word than soul. So it's it, the only equivalent in English is soul, soul versus ego, but jiva is the, is the animating force. And so, you know, when that sperm and ovum come together, they, it's not they that make the baby. It's that there's a spark of light in the astral world. That's how Master described it. And those jivas who are ready to incarnate, who are in tune with that spark of light, Master's exact words, will, will rush to try to get in. <laughs> and sometimes he said more than one gets in. Such a funny way to put it, but that's how he put it. If you're ready to incarnate, you see the flash of light, and if you're in tune with that light, you'll be drawn into it. And so then you enter, and then it's the conscious awareness and destiny of that jiva and, and the karmic pattern in the chakras that the jiva carries with him in an energetic form that then begins to activate and turn that into a living child. Because if there's no individual consciousness, there's no child, there's no life. It's, you watch it from the other side when people die. I was talking to a friend recently about, you know, deaths that we, we had witnessed. And I was reading this about a story uh, about how completely devoted you are to the body the jiva inhabits until the jiva departs. 
and then that which you were hovering over and giving so much attention to just ceases to be what it was because the jiva is no longer acting through it. So watching this and hearing this whole story, and I, I, they, they couldn't say it because they didn't know it. They just know that for some reason, instead of continuing as just making one human body, this one subdivided into four parts. Well, of course it did because there were four jivas who decided that they would crowd together in that womb and get to be sisters through their whole lives. What fun. But you, you, you have to stand back. You can't just think that these are random occurrences. And this is what Master is saying. You know, there's this force that keeps growing those melons there. And it, they're poisonous. They're not edible. They don't contribute to the welfare of human life. And now this comes in also into something else that has to be there's so many wonderful answers in the in Sanatana Dharma as Swamiji and Master have explained it to us to so many confusing questions because of course we decide that those poisonous melons are not helpful because they're not helpful to human life and because Master wants to grow edible melons and Satan insists on growing poisonous melons and he grows them all over the place and they just don't seem to be able to coexist because the human body is the, is the only form on this planet that has a nervous system refined enough um, to be able to perceive infinity. And that's what makes mankind more important than the other creatures. Is because this body, the jiva in this body, as the possibility of realizing God. And so therefore this body is a more important body to inhabit than the body of a dog or a horse or a whale or a dolphin. Not because they aren't consciousness itself. And, and that's why it's not a sin to protect this human body from wild beasts, for example. You know, if, if it's necessary to take the life of a tiger in order to save the life of a human, it's considered from a divine perspective to be an appropriate action, even though, in principle, ahimsa, harmlessness, is required. So we, we measure everything in terms of its benefit or obstacle to human life. And that is a valid measurement. Now, of course, if there's no human beings, then those poisonous plants are just going to grow. But there's also the human consciousness adds refinement. There was a dispute at Ananda that actually went on in different forms at different times. When Swami Kriyananda built what is now the Crystal Hermitage, there's a hillside that goes, goes down to the canyon, which is beyond the walls of the garden that he created there. But some of the trees that grew there obstructed the view of the river. So he had men come in and cut down some of those trees. And there was, from some quarters, a hue and cry that he had cut down those trees. And uh, on another occasion, in about around 1998, 1999, um, we, we had had a, a, a large judgment against us in court in the litigation that I was referring to earlier. And we were really... We had a very hostile creditor and we were really in a very difficult situation. And one of the men who was in charge of it was walking through our property. We had a thousand acres of land. 
but didn't want to sell any of it. And he realized that he was looking at tens of thousands of dollars worth of timber because so much of that thousand, most of that thousand acres was completely undeveloped. And he also realized that forest management is an ecologically sound thing to do. It's not the same as logging. Logging, of course, was a very bad word, but forest management was not. Plus, there had been, and it had been 20 years earlier, there had been a fire 20 years before, and we'd never really put our minds to what to do. It was just all growing wildly. So it was deemed a very good idea for, for both sides of the equation to take down a lot of those trees in a systematic, intelligent way, and then replant according to, you know, good professional advice and so on. But there was a big hue and cry about it. So Swami talked about the fact, he, he, had, he had many answers to it. Well, this actually came out in a letter. This one woman who had a preference for wilderness, which is her way of putting it. She said she decided, because she was very upset about it. Um, it, was, it was before the, before the foresters, the, the, lo- the logging happened, everybody who had a tree who was a special friend could mark it. <laughs> And so it would be spared unless, it, unless there was a reason why it couldn't be. But she was still very upset. So she decided that she would ask those most closely involved. <laughs> and she started asking the trees. And she walked through many of what she called the hidden paths of those thousand acres and asked the trees what they thought about it. And she then wrote to Swami and she said she received complete reassurance that they were perfectly happy to cooperate with our plans. And... She also said further that they were very happy to sacrifice in order to preserve the community. And then, and you know, we had all sacrificed enormously to preserve the community, and they were happy to also. They, you know, if they could be useful by being cut down, which they would be, then they were very glad to do that. Then Swami said later, he said... Um, Trees, although conscious beings, don't have individual egos the way humans do, which is why they can't progress spiritually because they can't objectify and use their willpower. I mean, trees are even less free than animals. He said their sense of rightness is the overall rightness of things without seeing themselves as individual in that process. And then Swami says something that was so simple. He said every fairy tale that you read, the evil witch always lives in the middle of a huge unkempt forest. Isn't that right? I mean, that's even associated in our imagination. You know, the creepers are all over, the trees are fallen. It's totally uncared for. Uncared for by whom? Uncared for by humans. And then evil forces begin to congregate there. And Swami commented about how the Crystal Hermitage Garden, after he built it, he said there were many more birds after they cultivated it than before. And he says the Davis themselves are happy when there's beauty and order, as long as it's done with respectful regard. Now, you just like, there's so many things. So when Master talks about these poisonous melons proliferating everywhere, and he calls them satanic, it's because... Master wants to grow these melons which will support the monks and 
give them food and save the money and allow them to live off the land. And there's just a, a conscious force that just won't allow them to grow, but instead, almost to mock him, covers the area with these poisonous melons. Isn't it fascinating? You know, and it's just, it's just such a more interesting way to look at things. And I, I, we can talk more about this. I think I'll come back to it, but I think I'll just stop because that whole question, there's a little more that could be said, but I think I'll stop there. Any comments or questions before we leave it for tonight? All right, so we did 3.10 and we started 3.11, but we'll probably start... Well, pardon me? For the poison... Oh, good. I thought you were going to say it for the poisonous melons. <laughs> this, well, this book is just so rich. How can you not enjoy it? Yeah. <laughs>